Hi, you're listening to the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. This podcast takes the lived experiences and knowledge of some of the leading figures and thinkers from the world of club management and beyond, all so that they can become your teacher and elevate your performance. Whether you're looking to start a career in club management, are a seasoned club manager at a world-leading club, or work elsewhere within this wonderful industry, there will be powerful messages and key takeaways that can help you in your career or personal life. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, and welcome to the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Dylan Lindstrom, the General Manager of Royal Wellington Golf Club in New Zealand. Dylan, how are you? Morning, Ed. Uh, nice to be here. Excellent. Thank you for joining me. So, one of the two Royal Clubs, Royal Golf Clubs in New Zealand, along with Royal Auckland and Grange, where I work. What got you there? What got you into golf, and what's your background? Uh, I, well, I started working in golf uh, 32 years ago uh, as a 12-year-old. I was a, a range rat uh, working at a driving range. I was lucky enough to. Um, get get wrapped up and working in golf very very early around the same time I started playing the game. I I did my PGA apprenticeship when I was nineteen and went into a coaching career. Uh, part of doing the apprenticeship, of course, like most young people, I wanted to play, uh, and I was going to do that and then continue on and have a crack at playing. But one of the things I discovered uh, when I started coaching was that I actually enjoy being around people. A lot more than than actually playing the game and the thing I enjoy about playing the game now is being around people so that kind of led me down the path of coaching for a number of years um, and then I started working with the district association with Wellington Golf about 2010 I was there for three and a half years as the golf development manager and that's where I guess my sphere of influence grew from dealing with one or two people at a time to groups of people, schools, uh, elite academy stuff. Uh, from there, I was headhunted by Royal Wellington to come in as the director of golf. Um, club was going through a bit of a transition at that point, uh, change to try and, I guess, improve its image and be a little bit more welcoming. Uh, didn't have a great perception out in the community. It was, you know, seen as being elitist and stuffy, all of those things that I guess most rural clubs or or generally most golf clubs um, have. Certainly by people outside of golf, that's probably how they're viewed. So they were looking to change that. I came in, had five years as the director of golf here. Um, my predecessor left and uh, I was lucky enough to be asked to go in as acting general manager and they haven't been able to get rid of me now for five years. So... Uh, I'm a permanent fixture. Oh, nice. It's yeah, change can be difficult. What kind of what rate did you take the change from when you came in as director of golf? Obviously, you came in with an understanding of what they wanted to achieve. Uh, what was what was your process to go about with that? Because change hard is hard for people. So, just be curious to know how you approached it. Yeah, I think a good question because I, I don't think they actually knew necessarily what it looked like beyond being welcoming. Um, that's that's a word that kept coming up all the time. Funnily enough, when I started with Wellington Golf, 
the person that employed me, the general manager there at the time and the, the chair of the board said, Dylan, we want you to come in and we want you to just just feel free to get your hands and change anything you want straight away. You know, you can really lead the direction. And, and I actually ended up paralyzed. There were so many things that were already in place that I had to learn how they worked that I, I didn't change anything in the first year. And I, I, I wouldn't say I had guilt about that, but I thought, gee, you know, am I, am I doing the right thing? When I started at Royal Wellington, the general manager that employed me, we started talking about some of the areas where we could improve. And then midway through the discussion, he said, oh, look, you know, you've got to, you've got to go through a full year to see how everything works anyway before you probably understand how you want to change it. I thought, oh, man, that's uh, absolutely right, you know. So that that was a took a was a big relief I think for me and took a lot of pressure off having to change anything and then ironically I went and started making change straight away because as I saw opportunities I thought well I might as well just start doing that now that doesn't make sense and uh, get moving. It's interesting. I think yeah, there's a lot of talk around empowered leadership and then obviously laissez-faire and authoritarian to be the classic types. I think a lot of leaders end up being laissez-faire when they think they're being empowering and it's i think it is quite paralyzing to be told do all these things change all these things that's actually not empowering because if you don't have any idea of what really the end should look like or what the objectives are and you're just told change stuff that's actually a bit like it's more laissez-faire it's not it's not empowering because you don't have the guidance because you don't, and you don't have the knowledge and experience of being there first to have, as you say, understand how things work. Cause there's always stuff, which that every role I've gone to, I've looked at stuff and gone, that makes no sense. And then six months later, I've gone, huh, that makes total sense why it's done like that because there's these unique things to go with it. You're, you're right. And change is hard, as you said before. So you don't really want to be making change for the sake of making change. And things are normally done a certain way because um, that's how they've evolved to. Uh, they weren't necessarily always that way. I guess one of the big things for me is talking to the people around me and just asking a lot of questions and getting their input and, and asking why we do things. And sometimes the answer is simply because that's the way we've always done it. Um, so that that usually gives you a good signal that you're you're on the right track and that you know something could be modified amended improved uh, but quite often um, there there are some some really good reasons why we do things a certain way or a, a significant roadblock I guess to to change them we could do it differently but then you've actually got to consider all of these unintended consequences so um, yeah that's that's something I've always front of mind so I always try and get as much input from the people around me as I can mm. so that would be like the process you go about when you see something that you think actually we could improve this area you would then have a bit of a plan process around uh, data gathering to go and find out actually yeah what's the unintended consequences what's the history behind behind that that's something you do quite consciously or something you've developed as a skill uh Probably developed it, um, and yeah, but definitely my process is to go out and, and start talking to, you know, if it's something in the clubhouse, I'm going to go and talk to my hospitality manager and say, I've been looking at this, or, uh, you know, some of the key leaders in that area, and just getting input from people that use 
the space in, in that situation regularly and start canvassing thoughts, canvassing members and just start to try and build a, a picture by pulling all this information in. Um, and then, of course, you know, data where it's appropriate as well. Um, tr yeah, try and get a clear sense of what's happening, where it is, and, and then starting to build a picture of where it might end up. And I guess a lot of the time we go into these things with, we think we know what the end result's going to look like. Uh, and then what you end up with can be significantly different from that. So, um, so when it comes to then, the, yeah, I don't know if it's. I was just going to say, when it comes to then implementing that, once you've decided, right, that's what we're going to change. When it comes to implementing it, at what point do you pull the trigger to go, right, we're going to make this change at this level. And as you just said, you don't know how it's going to end up looking anyway. So you're going to iterate to the point that, probably works the best so when do you feel at what point do you have like a you know a gut instinct or just a right i think i feel this is ready to go and we'll get to the right end result through actually trial and error yeah. almost yeah absolutely and i think you know you've you've thought through as much as you can think through um you don't want to paralyze yourself with that and and, and overdo it i think when you've you, you feel like you're ready you've got all the information you need you've got a bit of a, a path but I think you have to be conscious of the fact that you're not going to have picked up everything. And uh, a person much smarter than me said uh, last week, a really good way to make change is just let people know it's a pilot. You know, be open with people that this, this may not be the end product. If it doesn't work, we, we actually might reverse it out. This isn't a forever thing. Um, or that there may be further change uh, once we actually see it in use. Because some things you just can't test. You just have to, you know, the real world experience is quite different from, from how you imagined it would be. And you have to then adapt, adjust, uh, amend um, to, to improve and, and keep people happy, I guess. Mm. I mean, everything, I always try and think of things in probabilities. So if you, you might think, right, here's what we're going to implement. And there's a 60% chance it will do this thing that I think it will. But then there's 20% it could go this way and 20% it could go that way. So you, you're almost never wrong in the sense that it probably is going to go one of the ways you think it will. There's just one way you think it's most likely. And if it doesn't go that way, you kind of already know where it might have gone. And then you know, well, actually, if it's going that 20% way, that's going to end up something we don't want. We can then reverse that. Yeah, and it's good to have a couple of tricks up your sleeve if that's going to happen. So you're slightly prepared uh, and can can roll those those changes out pretty quickly to, to minimise the level of disruption as well. Mm. And how do you approach it when you get, anytime there's change, there's always the naysayers. Um, no matter what that change may be, there'll be people who just, because it's changed, they don't like it. And then when they come to you with that, how do you approach engaging with them? Yeah. So, you know, we're a big club. We're 1,700 members, um, a lot of strong personalities. You're very familiar with it. Um, and one thing I learned very, very early on, once you get a group, or once you get more than one person, uh, no matter what you do, there's likely going to be someone or some people, a group that are disaffected, unhappy with that change. Uh, so you go into anything knowing that some people are not going to like uh, the outcome of, of change. Um, I guess you just have to really be uh, passionate um, 
you have to have thought things through and I guess you have to be comfortable that you're doing things for the right reasons. And if people, so I get a lot of feedback and they say, look, I, I don't like this. I don't like the new frost policy that's in place at the club. I think it should be done a different way. And you say, well, yeah, I, I, I understand where you're, you're coming from. I, and I know why you're upset. You're the disaffected group. If we did it the other way, it would be the other people. But this is actually why we chose to do it this way. And there's probably some things you haven't considered. And if it's well-reasoned, and I guess fair, though, generally what I find is they'll come back to me and say, I, I still don't like it, but I understand why you did it. And I think that's a good place mm. to get to. Yeah, that is. That's a good place. If they understand it, that's certainly uh, half the battle uh, within that, I think. Um, then we, we... And if they'll still talk to you afterwards as well, that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's always a good one, yeah. They're not walking the opposite direction. You piss, you piss me off, but we can we can still chat. We can still be friends. Yeah. And when you're making those those changes, is that something where it's a combination of obviously your own expertise and experience, research into the subject, and then talking with the constituents, for want of a better term? You kind of know when you make a decision who the disaffected group will be and who it may benefit, or just who it's going to affect in general, would you just have discussions with them in general to try and understand how everybody sees things and thinks about things? Obviously, like, something like a FOSS policy, a bit less so, because there's enough science behind the economy of what that yeah. should be, but for more subjective matters. Yeah, you can't over-communicate, and you can't have too many communication channels for these things you it's really hard to to get messages through mm. to people they generally only want to hear what they want to hear or they don't know what they don't know um it's it's newsletters it's sitting down with groups it's it's knowing who your influences are within the club as well and then being able to bring them on side and if you don't give people all the information, if there's not transparency, they start filling in those gaps. You know, the reasons why you did it, oh, they're just doing this because of, you know, these selfish reasons. So, um, yeah, you've got, to, you've got to work out what those key messages are and then communicate, communicate, communicate. Uh, newsletters, put notices up, uh, direct email, conversations. I, I really do... My staff, my management team laugh at me because, particularly on a Friday, I spend most of my day, it seems like, out on the putting green, out the front of my office, talking to members coming through. And mostly what I'm doing is, is letting them know about changes mm. and what's going on and, and trying to keep my finger on the pulse. Uh, so they kind of laugh, but I think they appreciate uh, that it, it does have a positive impact. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that hitting the, I think you hit the nail on the head there with the, people fill in the gaps and they fill in the gaps with usually the worst case or the worst reason for, for why something's happened or the, or what's happening. Um, people just, you know, gossip and golf clubs spread like wildfire. Uh, and it's. They're creative with it as well. Yeah. Like they come up with some really creative explanations as to why we're doing things. Yeah. I do find it yeah so. fascinating. Sometimes the stuff that comes back to you, like, wow, I'm actually curious how you got to that assumption. <laughs> Cause that's quite interesting. <laughs> Yeah. The other one I do like as a saying is that uh, you can't reason someone out of an opinion with logic and rationale if that's not how they got to the opinion in the first place. 
Oh, that's so true. I like that. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, welcome to it. I stole it. So, yeah, I think that's when you're having conversations with people. You can like, yeah, where's that? It's understanding that emotion. Where's that emotion coming from? Because I think a cynic to me is someone who is truly and deeply passionate about, in this scenario, a golf club, who have been disappointed or let down many times. And that's why they're cynical about stuff that's happening because they've had promises or stuff's said it's been done and it hasn't worked, hasn't been done, hasn't been communicated. Uh, and they're actually the people most passionate because they are emotional and they're the ones that on board with You're you. Absolutely um, right. I, I think quite often the question that comes to you first of all isn't uh, relative to or, or even relevant to where, that, where they're actually coming from. And a lot of the time you've really got to dig deep to find out what their real issue is. So it could be that you I, I change the day that the tea sheets open, for example, and they're questioning you about that, but actually there's something else going on behind the scenes and that's not really what they're dissatisfied with. It's, it's something else. So you've got to have a lot of empathy for the person and you've got to try not to get emotional back and be rational and and understand, listen, listen properly, mm-hmm. actually. But you you do have to dig beneath the surface and actually find out what's going on. And uh, and that can take time sometimes. So, you know, it's not really that forthcoming. But you build up that trust in the relationship and, and you find then actually you start to find out some of the real reasons why they're they're unhappy with some change or with something, a process within the club. Mm. Yeah, that, that the deep emotional reason uh, is off. Yeah, it comes often out as, as anger, I think, often is how it come gets expressed. But there's some yeah deeper reason behind it. That once you've tapped into that, and there's all the research around how we mirror other people. So if you're portraying, you're relaxed, you're calm, positive body language it's really hard for someone to stay angry and shouting when you're not giving it back they just generally come come down towards where you are do you think we should start dressing up like clowns or something in a, in a golf club well, um, I, I you know something clowns. that's <laughs> projects a happy fun <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um so you're thinking uh, a flower on your lapel so you can squirt the water on someone's face. That would be useful uh, on occasion, I think, here. Yeah, that could you, you, look, you, I'm sorry, you've overstepped the mark. I'm just going to squirt you with water <laughs> from my flower now and end this conversation. <laughs> yeah, worth trialling. Let me know how that pilot goes. That, yeah, a pilot, definitely. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier about going from five years as director of golf into the general manager role. Obviously, five years is a good length of time at a club to know, um, have a good relationship with everybody. How did you find the transition from people being your peers as fellow head of departments to them then having to report to you and the people who you were close with in your team now having a layer between you? So it was really challenging. Um, it was it was really challenging for me. It was I think it was challenging for them as well. Uh, I would I would guess 
it has taken some time. Um, I mean, my style's not really hierarchical anyway. I, you know, we, we've all got a job to do. We're all a cog within the machine. So, you know, I, I value the importance of, of all of the team members, whether it's the management team, whether it's, you know, just a, a groundsman. Uh, they're not just a groundsman. They're, they're, they're critical to the operation every single day. So that's, I guess, my style. Um, and I probably thought that that would make it quite easy. And I thought five years uh, as director of golf it would make it easier. And I'm sure it did in a lot of ways. Uh, I, and I developed a lot of trust with my peers that I could do my job well. Uh, and when I moved into the general manager role, I had to rebuild that trust completely again. Uh, I had to prove to them that I you know, had a understanding of what happens and uh, understanding of my role and that it wasn't going to negatively impact their jobs. Because, I mean, that's what they care about ultimately is is their own security and um, futures too. So it, it did take a, a lot longer. It was a lot harder. It was a more difficult transition. I, do, I specifically remember the very first day as general manager. Now, I've been here five years. You finish up at the end of the day, turn your computer off and go home. It took me another hour because I suddenly realized, gee, this is... This is all my responsibility. I am the last stop now. And I walked around the building about three times and I just was looking, you know, is there something I've missed? Um, the, that weight of responsibility wasn't something that I was expecting to be quite so heavy. Uh, and it was it was really noticeable right on day one. Mm. Hey, I suppose, especially with a historic club, you're then the custodian of it for the future. A club that's been there a long time before we were born and will be there a long time after we die. You're just that custodian to pass it on to the next generation. So then, yeah, hopefully better than when I found it. That's the that's the goal. Always the goal, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's interesting. And I did it obviously with those fellow HUDs. And how about the like your golf team? Obviously, you went from being probably a very close relationship with them. Obviously, it's always difficult, you know, when you're and anytime you're a leader, there's that, you know balance between being friendly with them but they also report to you to then say having that layer between you when they're now reporting to someone else if you're still there in the background there was i was really lucky so uh the person that went into the director of golf role was my golf shop manager um it was a, a very logical step for him for josh to go into that role uh, and so I had a lot of support from him. Mm. We were we were moving up mm. and forward together. So we had a bit of a team. Uh, we we kind of rebuilt the the whole golf team. Mm. So uh, a head professional, he decided to make some changes in his life. Once you get change, change begets change. Yep. So whether it was something I did or just you know it gave him an opportunity to reflect on his his own career and what he wanted to do next. But he decided to make some change so that created some opportunity for us to start building a new team as well. Um, you do take it quite personally when kind of people people leave <laughs> when you've just had a promotion into a into a new role and, and people underneath you are, are, are wanting to change. You you do take it personally at first, but then I guess you kind of realise that you know people have got their own lives and, and their own goals and dreams. Yeah. to wish them every success. Yeah, they're not all just abandoning a ship because you've taken over the captaincy, you know. 
although as you say it can feel like that mm. yeah you did first up but yeah no you I mean you're just a little self-conscious i think yeah. of um yeah over analyzing mm. and then coming back to dealing with members how do you approach situations where because you know there's the old saying the customer's always right and there's some merit to that in the sense that each one of us has our own unique view on reality because the world does revolve around us in a literal sense from our own perspective looking out we are the center of the world in how we view it so there's always going to be an element of you know, i i can't i can have empathy but for someone who's 70 who's been a member for 40 years or someone who's 20 because i don't really remember what it's like to be 20 i can't quite understand you know you, you can have empathy but truly understanding how they see x y z the customer journey whatever it might be is always going to be unique but there's sometimes where i think we can probably say that their view of understanding is just is wrong because they've misinterpreted something they lack information how do you then approach those situations when a member comes to you they've got the wrong end of the stick or they're just kind of miss, get, missing the point as to why something's being done. Yeah, so look, all our members are perfect. Um, so I'd only have to draw on experiences from other clubs. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah. It, it does happen. Look, one of the things I I do consciously is there's, there's members that you really warm to. There's people that you just have a natural rapport with those are the easy ones. I, I, it's not that I don't focus on them, but I have to, I recognize people that I have to consciously go out of my way to try and give them the same experience as the people I naturally have a rapport with. And I, I think that helps because it does, makes me seem approachable. Uh, there's a perception of approachability. Uh, I, I get that fed back to me quite a lot. So I assume that's the view that people have. Um, and I think that's really important. That open, you know, We talk about an open door policy. My door swings off its hinges. People feel very comfortable coming in and talking to me. So I do have open dialogue with a significant portion of the membership. Um, and I guess that's probably been the most useful tool in my tool belt um, for dealing with those situations. It's... Also, I guess how passionate you are about, you know, your convictions, really, are they, you know, if I feel confidently that we're doing something for the right reason, you do have to try and bring them around, um, give them the information that they need, uh, listen to them and try and figure out where they've gone wrong in that information, why they've misunderstood it. Um, but I think, yeah, just you, you've got to keep talking to members, clients all of the time. Yeah, and it's so true about the rapport thing. You know, if, when you've got 1,700 members especially, if you just met 1,700 random people, there's just going to be a bunch of people naturally whose personalities don't you know, match with yours. That's just normal society. And it's then, as you say, it's fine in that way. Then what are the commonalities and connections you can find with those people and force yourself, which I think is what it is, force yourself to go and speak to those 
people that if it was a purely social setting, you wouldn't, which is just normal that we don't, we're all unique people. We're not going to get on with everybody. Yeah, and in social situations, I do try and get out and talk to everyone mm. as well. Uh, there's so many incredibly interesting mm. people that I've met that at face value, uh, I wouldn't have realised had I not mm. you know, struck up a conversation. I guess it's the ones where you, you do meet someone and you think, Oof, that was hard work. Then you've got to go and do it again and again mm -hmm. and again because they are, they're a customer, they're a client, they're a member, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Actually, you you are then forcing yourself to do that, um, but there's still there's still nuggets of gold in there. There's oh, some that I've yeah. probably done that with over the years, and you know I, I genuinely like these people mm. now. So yeah, oh, and people uh, are just, so that's kind of cool too. People are fascinating. Um, I was talking with one of our members recently who I you know, hadn't really spoke with much before, and found out like they're involved in brokering international trade deals. Is part of what their career has been. So you just find people, people are fascinating. Everyone's got a fascinating stories within them. I think the challenge with some people is pulling those stories out because they're either just not natural storytellers or they're yeah. kind of trying to what generation they're from. They're quite humble and they don't want to. And I think as well, most people think their lives are boring or uninteresting because it's just your life. To you, it's just normal stuff. That's right. Whereas to other people... It's really interesting because it's not their life. And it's teasing that out of people. And some people are just introverted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have no interest to talk about themselves. Like, you know, I don't mind talking, which is useful when you have a podcast, but I much prefer <laughs> listening to other people talk because I already know what I know. I'm far more interested in finding out what you know so I can either update what I know and replace stuff that I've got wrong or just learn new things. Yeah, and, and you just highlighted something to me uh, and reminded me of when I'm having these communications with members as well, if, if they feel aggrieved about something, um, you, you've got to be open to changing your view and opinion. I mean, I, sometimes they come up to me and I've got a completely different view to them, but they'll, they'll swing me around and I think, mm -hmm. gee, I didn't really realise that or I didn't, hadn't thought of that. Uh, and and if you can change your mind, your view, they give you a great idea, they give you a great solution, and you implement it. I mean, it's massively rewarding mm. for them as well because they really feel like they've contributed and 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 that they're being listened to. Mm. And then they want to do it again, and they you know. So it's yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, you've got to be you've got to be willing to change your mm. views, uh, well, to update them as you get better information. Yeah, definitely. I think I always take the view that. All my opinions and views, I have really strong views and opinions, but they're all loosely held. Like, they're not yep. they're not who I am. They're just my current beliefs and views, which I you know, I believe in strongly and passionately, but I hold them loosely. Like if I update and change them, it's it doesn't mean I'm any less. It's like if I'm having a conversation with someone and I think X is true and they think Y is true. I'm not that interested in arguing my case. I'm more interested in finding out which one's right because if they're right, I need to update my own view rather than I want to win the battle to make them think I'm right. Yeah, and it, don't you think that's one of the great things about golf is that because you spend you know, four or five hours with someone, mm. you actually 
have that opportunity to talk about things a little bit more deeply sometimes mm. and you can have those conversations and, and challenge people's uh, uh, your own opinions and views and theirs and actually you know shape your thinking um, I find it really hard these days to, to find those conversations mm. um, the golf course is one place but I guess you've got to know someone pretty well mm. uh, my, my dad and me we have uh we love a good debate. It sounds like we're arguing horrifically. Um, but like you said, we've just got, you know, we're, we're arguing a point because I want you to change my mind on it, basically. Mm, yeah. I want you to argue really strongly for something else and I, I want to be challenged. So, you know, we'll we'll really drive home our own messages. But actually, we're, we are listening to what the other person's saying. Mm. And, and we normally find some common ground at the end of it and think, yeah, it's probably the best... Uh, best current answer mm. available. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, one of my colleagues or former colleagues in Hong Kong, I'm close friends with, we always have, we have this saying, um, wanna bet. So if one of us would say something like X is true, well, that's my opinion. The other would just say wanna bet, as in, are you that sure that's 100% correct that you're actually willing to place a bet on it? Because as soon as the other person says that, you start going, well, yeah, but actually this and this could be true. I just think this is more true. So it kind of keeps you having to always rethink how well do I actually know this? There was a in online course I did recently called um, Open Mind, written by a really interesting uh, professor of philosophy, Jonathan Haidt. And the question, one question came up with, do you know how a zipper works? It's like, well, yes, of course I do. I use a zipper every day. Yes. Next page was, please explain in detail how a zipper works and i was like oh other than i pull it up and down i actually don't know how it works not the not yeah could you build one exactly couldn't build one because i don't know how it works you're like oh actually yeah there's loads of things like that where we think we know how things work because we use them all the time but we actually couldn't explain to someone how it works even for them to build it if they had the expertise let alone yourself um which i find quite interesting to kind of keep challenge, challenging my own concept, preconceptions of what things are and why do I think this is the right way or whatever it might be. That's a good relationship. I like that. You know, do you want to bet? You could even evolve it to how much do you want to bet? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, how how sure are you? You know, I'm willing to bet $5 on this. I'm not willing to bet my house. Yeah. Yeah, because it's made me use what I'd call ranges. So rather than saying... Um, I mean, let's use the US Open as an example this week. If you said to me, what do you think the winning score will be? Before, I would say, oh, it'll be X. Now I'd be more willing to go, well, it, I have a range between this and this. And the challenge is, I could say, you know, plus eight to minus 10 and say, I'm 100% sure it'll be within that range. But that's a pretty boring range. You want to narrow it down to say, well, I think it'll be based on previous US Opens, plus two to minus four, and I'd be 60% sure it'll be within that range. So you're trying to always put probabilities to a range. The bigger the range, obviously, it's easy. Um, but that's kind of how I try and think about things. Yeah. Look, I started reading Brian Greene's book on mm. string theory and quantum physics, and uh, pretty quickly you realize you don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. And, and nothing is true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be certain of anything yep. anymore. You know, we just we just have experiences. 
Yeah. No, it's interesting that stuff. I've read um, Carlo Ravelli. He's written some brilliant books on uh, quantum physics. And the reason I say they're brilliant is I understood them. So <laughs> in the sense that, you know, he's taken something so complex and I've understood it. But yeah, same thing. It's maybe go, yeah, I don't know anything about reality and, and how things work. And you have to know things pretty well to be able to explain them mm. clearly to people that, you know, like us. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's one thing, you know, if if someone doesn't understand, maybe we don't know it. If our members mm. don't understand something properly, maybe we don't know it as well as we think we do. Yep. And we need to invest a little bit more time uh, and then we can give a clearer um, explanation to them. Definitely, I think, because we, we, we come from a viewpoint, we explain something that we already know. So it's easy to not explain it well. I mean, I tend to use my wife because she doesn't play golf and isn't involved in golf. Uh, I'll send her something to say, look, I've written this, read it and tell me what you think it means without any understanding of golf. And if she gets somewhere near to what I want it to be understood as, I know I'm right. Or, you know, as close as a good explanation as you can. Yeah. Sometimes she comes back with just like, yeah, I got not, not a Scooby what you're on about. It's like, okay, I need to start again. <laughs> and then you just go straight on chat, chat GPT, put it in and ask it to rephrase it for me. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, the world's getting easier. Yeah. Nice. Dylan, is there anything else you wanted to cover or any other of your vast knowledge that you wanted to leave for the listeners? Uh, only that, you know, golf is fun. Uh, it's fun for a lot of reasons and it's, it's, it's really important for a lot of people. And, you know, it's, we can get too serious about it. Um, it is just golf. You know, we're not brain surgeons. We're not saving people's lives, but equally, it's a very important part of people's lives. So what we do is is mm. important, and we we do have to care. Um, you know, golf plays a really important role in society and giving people help with their mental health. You know, uh, the mental challenges in golf, this social connectedness, being out in the beautiful environments. You know, we're we're, we're very very lucky. But it is, it is, it is just golf, you know. It's um, we should be having fun. Members should be having fun, and and we working in the industry should be having fun because if we're not having fun doing it, like you say, people are going to mirror us. So, mm. um, I think that's really important. Wise words. Couldn't agree more. But Dylan, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate appreciate you joining me, and have a great day. Thanks, Ed. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we dive into the world of club management. I hope you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I enjoy having them. If you do enjoy and get value from them, I have two small requests. Simply subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening app and leave a review and share it directly with someone whom you think would benefit from listening. If you're interested in being a guest, on this show yourself, then you can reach out to me using the details in the show notes or email me modernclubmanagement at pm.me. In the show notes, you will also find a link to my bi-weekly newsletter that complements these conversations where you can sign up to receive these directly into your inbox so that you never miss out. Thanks for tuning in and have an amazing day.
This episode is brought to you by Sueda. Sueda is the social learning platform that delivers high quality blended learning with human connection. Sueda is on a mission to revolutionize the digital learning space through restoring the critical element of human engagement that has gotten lost in online learning. The technology provides everything organizations or individuals need on one single platform to achieve meaningful long-term learning success. Using these skills helped me attain a job offer as the director of golf at Golf Digest, top 100 in the world ranked course after I completed their influence and communication courses. But don't just take my word and the 97% five-star reviews it has had on Trustpilot for it. Try it yourself. All you have to do is email david at suada.com, that's S-U-A-D-A.com, and quote the Modern Club Management Podcast to claim your free enrollment onto the Reciprocity course to start your journey to become a more influential and persuasive communicator.